Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is David Nasby. I am the moderator for today's town hall forum. Co-sponsors for today's forum is the American Express Financial Advisors, Inc. Through the generosity of American Express, we have been able to supply copies of the story of Ruby Bridges for the libraries of every elementary school in the metropolitan area. We believe that distribution of this story of young Ruby will help teachers and students to discuss the important questions of race and equality. On November 14, 1960, six-year-old Ruby Bridges crossed the threshold of William France Elementary School and single-handedly initiated the desegregation of the New Orleans public schools. Each day, she trudged up the stairs praying, please God, try to forgive those people, because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. The story of Ruby Bridges by Pulitzer Prize winner Robert Coles tells of Ruby's strength and faith. He retells her story with eloquence, clarity, and sensitivity, helping today's children understand the darker side of American history, the segregation, racism, and rage that divided this country prior to and during the era of the Civil Rights Movement. The book has allowed Ruby Bridges to spread her message in newspapers, magazines, and on television. The Oprah Winfrey Show, her story was the subject of a wonderful World of Disney television special just a few weeks ago in January. And last evening, I uh, viewed again the tape of this special presentation in preparation for today. President Clinton provides a prologue to this special, and he challenges all of us to learn from the courage of young Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges graduated from France Elementary School, the school that she integrated, and she went on to high school and college. Today, she lives and works in New Orleans and runs the Ruby Bridges Educational Foundation to promote parental involvement in public schools. I am sorry to report that Ruby is not here with us today. Last week, her husband was struck in a hit-and-run automobile accident and seriously injured, and yesterday he took a turn for the worse and is now in critical condition. So we send our prayers and good wishes to Ruby, who is at her husband's side in New Orleans this morning. Ruby's cousin, Dorothy Bridges, from Minneapolis, will read Ruby's remarks prepared for today, and Dorothy will respond to questions from the audience following her remarks. Welcome, Ms. Bridges, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Mr. Nasby, for your kind words. And thank you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum Committee for inviting me to join you today to tell Ruby's story. As Mr. Nasby said, I am Dorothy Bridges, a first cousin of Ruby Bridges. Please keep Ruby and her family in your thoughts and in your prayers at this hour of need. 
As I give Ruby's speech today, I hope I can convey to you her energy and her spirit, which make her a special person to me and to so many others. In my preparation for coming here today, I was honored to learn that the students at Anderson Elementary School in Minneapolis have been reading the Ruby Bridges story, a book by Dr. Robert Coles. The book is about a little six-year-old black girl who must make her way past a screaming mob just to go to school, and how she spends an entire year in that school alone with only her teacher because no white parents will allow their child to be in class with the little girl. I'm told that some of the students at Anderson were surprised to learn that the book is about events that really happened. Fourth grader Sylvester Lewis asked, is this a true story? Well, the answer is yes, Sylvester. There is a Ruby Bridges, and I'm her cousin. I'm here today to share her real life story with all of you. The story of a single black girl trying to integrate an all-white school that didn't want her to come. The time was 1960, and the place was New Orleans. I want to take you back to that time and place. I want you to see what she saw and feel what she felt. I want to tell you about the brave people who helped her through that difficult year. And then I want you to reflect and I want, I want to reflect, reflect with you on the great capacity children have for courage and to pose a challenge to every child in this audience today. Here's Ruby's story as she would have told it were she here. Let me begin at the beginning. I was born in 1954 near Tallatown, Mississippi to Avon and Lucille Bridges. When I was two, we moved to New Orleans, and my father took a job as a gas station attendant. My mother raised the children, and she had a lot of raising to do because there were eight of us. I was the oldest, and in 1959, when I turned five, I went to kindergarten at an all-black school, a segregated school. What does segregation mean? It means separating people from each other and treating them differently, based solely on their race. There was a time in this country when black children and white children were forced to go to separate schools, especially in the South. Today we take it for granted that, children, that kids of all different races go to school together. But we had to fight for that to happen. We had to fight for integrated schools. And I didn't know it in kindergarten, but I was about to join that fight. In 1960, the year I was to start first grade, a federal court ordered the integration of the city's public schools. Black children and white children would no longer be kept apart. But this change was not going to occur in one magic instant. Black families had to step forward and offer to send their children to white schools. 
My mother had the courage to volunteer me to take part in the integration effort. She wanted the best education for me, and she wanted to put an end to discrimination. But it was a tough decision for her. You see, many white folks in New Orleans, not all whites, but many, thought of African Americans as second-class people. That's what segregation was all about. Through generations of fear and misunderstanding, through years of looking at the color of a person's skin instead of the content of that person's character, these whites have lost sight of the most important American ideals, that we are all created equal. And even though the law required white schools to teach black children, some white people were very angry about it. Like thunder in the distance, trouble was coming. Most white, black families were so concerned about what might happen to their children at white schools that they kept their kids in all black schools. Only a few of us ended up at the white schools. Under the court's order, three African-American girls went to an elementary school called McDonald 19. The court also sent several black students, including me, to the William France Public School. Because those other black students decided not to take part, I had to go to the France School alone. On the morning of November 14, 1960, I got ready for my first day at the France School. I was excited and a bit nervous. As I put on my new white dress, my mom said to me, now I want you to behave yourself today, Ruby, and don't be afraid. There might be a lot of people outside this new school, but I will be with you and you'll be okay. So I got my book bag and my little lunch pail and it was time to go. A big car was waiting for us outside with two white men wearing yellow armbands. I later learned that they were United States Federal Marshals sent by the President of the United States to protect me. I remember climbing into that big car and my mother holding my hand as we drove to school. My mom didn't say what the big car was for or why these men were with us. As she told me, all she told me was how we were going to get out of the car and how we should walk. Two marshals in front of us and two behind us. Then we drove up to the big school and waiting there for us, was something out of a, a nightmare. A frenzied, screaming mob, an ocean of furious white parents, some of them even with their children. The mob flooded the schoolyard, overflowing with bitterness, pounding against the police barricades that guarded the sidewalk leading up to the school. The hate rolled toward us like a tidal wave. The people were cursing, screaming and brandishing signs that said and shouted, whites only and nigger go home. Yes, they truly were an ocean, an ocean of wrath determined to wash away one little black girl 
who just wanted to go to school. Like sailors securing our ship, we got ready to face that howling, storming ocean. Mom said, remember Ruby, walk straight ahead and don't look back at them. After a deep breath, we climbed out of the car and took our first few steps. The crowd was deafening. They were yelling and shoving, and they pressed toward us as we inched forward. My first thought was, this sure must be a big, important school to have such a loud crowd out here. I still remember them chanting, two, four, six, eight. We don't want to integrate. I wondered what it meant. Two, four, six, eight. We don't want to integrate? I was pretty short, so I couldn't see much. The signs were far above my head, and I didn't look at the faces. What I saw was a narrow, concrete walk with grown-ups crowding up along either side, like a jetty stretching out into the ocean. At the end of that narrow walk, past the snarling crowd, rose the tall steps of my new school. We forged ahead, surrounded by the federal marshals, the ground almost shaking with the mobs shouting. When we reached the huge high steps, I looked up. The school towered over me. Step by step, we climbed, accompanied by the screams and the chants. And when I got to the top, policemen were guarding the door. Years later, I learned that they were Louisiana state troopers trying to block our way. They told the federal marshals, the great state of Louisiana says you cannot enter here. One of the marshals said, thank you, sir, but the president of the United States said I can. And then the state troopers gave way. We had made it inside. The door closed and muffled the mob noise. That was a relief. We walked down a huge hall with a shiny wood floor. Very impressive compared to my old school. Then we reached the principal's office where we sat and waited. And then the mayhem started up again. Angry parents yanking their kids by the arm stormed in and out of the office. They were all white, every last one of them. They kept pointing at me and yelling, it ain't gonna happen. It just ain't gonna happen. I sat on my chair, clutching my mom's hand. I didn't know what to make of all the shouting and the confusion. I thought maybe this was the way a big school worked. We sat there all day, waiting and waiting, and I watched that big round clock on the wall. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 noon, and on into the afternoon. Finally, at three, it was time to go home. Hmm, no teacher, no class, no schoolwork. 
I guess in its own way, that first day was easy. The next morning, my mother and I suffered the same terrible ordeal all over again. The car ride with the armed marshals, the march through the shouting mob, the climb up those big steps to the school door. But the second day, the school was empty. No parents, no students. Silence except for the muffled sound of the mob outside. My footsteps echoed in the shiny wood hallway. Everyone must already be in class, I thought. Later, of course, I found out that all the parents had taken their children out of the school because they didn't want a black child there. Two of the marshals took us to a classroom. I remember my mom asking me if I was afraid. Not as long as you are here, I whispered. One of the marshals took up watch outside the classroom door, and my mom and I went into the classroom. It was just as empty as the rest of the school. The desks were all lined up, row after row, without a single student. No kids to sit with during my lessons. No one to play with. No one to join me for lunch. It was like a ghost school. Hmm, I thought, I must be early. But then I spotted my teacher, the first and only smiling face in the entire school. She leaned over and offered me her hand. I'm Miss Henry, she said. Miss Henry was white and was very nice. Later, I learned that she had come a thousand miles all the way from Boston to teach me because no regular teacher would have me in her class. My mom took a seat in the back of the room. You can sit anywhere you want, Miss Henry said. Finding a desk was no problem. I sat in the front row. We got, we got right, right down, down to work, work despite the mob shouting outside. My second day ended with my mom still sitting there in the back. She stayed all day with me and then took me home with the marshals. Things changed on the third day. Once again, mom and I rode with the marshals. We made our way through the shouting crowd and the marshals took us to my classroom. But when, but when we, we got, got there, there, my mom said, well, well, Ruby, I can't, I can't stay, stay today, but you'll be all right. She, she kissed me goodbye, and as she left, she said, you'll be a good girl, and don't start crying. There I was, alone in that classroom, in that empty school, with the rumble of the mob in the background. Oh, you bet I started crying. But Miss Henry, who was at that moment, who at that moment seemed very, very white, promised that everything would be just fine. She led me to my desk, and after a few moments, the two of us got to work again. Reading, spelling, writing, math, even jumping jacks, right there in the classroom because I was not allowed to go on to the playground for my own safety. All the while, a federal marshal guarded the door. 
That's, That's the way, way it went, went all year long. Miss Henry only left me alone to eat her lunch. Other than that, we spent the entire day together, just the two of us. We became very close. She was everything I could have hoped for in a teacher, warm, smart, and caring. She became my best friend that year. While Ms. Henry and I were hard at work inside our classroom, things started to change outside. The months went by, and the mob got smaller and smaller, an ocean that slowly became a lake, then a pond, then a puddle. Maybe all those people got tired of shouting so much. One by one, white parents brought their kids back to school. But inside, I was still alone. I could not go to the cafeteria to eat lunch, and the kids who were in school never came to my classroom, although I could hear their voices in the next room. There was a door between the two rooms, and one day, Miss Henry opened it for me. It was like Disney World. I saw all those kids playing together. They had toys, even a dollhouse and all the students' artwork were taped on the wall. My classroom walls were just about bare, except for a few of my pictures. Oh, how I wanted to be with the other kids. I asked Miss Henry if, I could, if we could all be together. She had to fight for me, but a few times later in the year, I got to play with them. One black child in a sea of white faces. It was during a moment when we were together that I began to understand the awful truth about that year. One of the kids, a little boy, told me, my mom said, I can't play with you because you're black. I can't play with you because you're black? When I heard those words, everything began to make sense. Terrible, terrible sense in my mind. The great big car, the federal marshals, the shouting people, the empty classroom. I remember thinking, it's because I'm black. That's what this is all about, the color of my skin. My parents had worked so hard to shield me from the message of racial hatred, but after moments like this, it began to sink in. It was an awful feeling. I felt so lonely, so apart, so different, as if I were lost and alone on a small, cold island looking across the mainland where all the other kids were laughing and playing together on the beach. Why wouldn't anyone, wouldn't anyone send the ferry over to carry me across the water? It just didn't make any sense to me. What terrible crime had I, six-year-old Ruby Bridges, committed to make these white people want to punish me. I'll tell you what I'd done. Nothing, nothing at all. I hadn't lied, I hadn't cheated or stolen or hurt anybody. It just happened that I was born with skin of a darker color. And that was crime enough for all those white people who told their kids not to play with me. 
The school year ended on a hot June day with Miss Henry and me together in my classroom. She hugged me and gave me my final report card and I left for the summer. Next September, when I came back for second grade, school was different. The marshals were gone, the screaming people were gone, and my dear friend Miss Henry was also gone. I wondered if she missed me as much as I missed her. That long hallway with the shiny wood floor, so empty before, was filled with students. When I got to my new classroom, I found myself with a whole bunch of other children, both black and white. No longer was I on an island alone. From now on, we would all learn together, play together, eat lunch together. The William France Public School was finally integrated. Yes, there would be difficult moments after that, but starting that day, we, the children at France, would have a chance to discover what so many parents had not yet learned that our friends could be black or white or any color at all. Many people have said to me, you showed so much courage during those hard times. But I didn't do it on my own. I had my faith and I had the love and support of my family and my community. I think of my parents first. My mother is a woman of remarkable strength and courage. She was convinced that the schools had to be integrated if her children were going to get the best education possible. And she was with me every step of the way. Day after day, the mob sent me an awful message of hate. But night after night, over and over, my mother told me how much she loved me and how much God loved me. Whenever I was scared, she held me and told me to say my prayers. I'll tell you, I prayed a lot that year. The strain on my family was immense. At first, my dad didn't want me to go to the France school. He hated the idea of me facing that mob. My mom convinced him that integration was worth fighting for and that we should not give up. But then my dad lost his job as a gas station attendant because of me. And as the news spread across the country, my grandparents were forced to move from the farm in Tallytown, Mississippi, where they had been sharecroppers for over 25 years. Tension between my parents grew. Sadly, they separated and my mother was left alone to raise me and my seven brothers and sisters. But she never lost her faith or her resolve. My family and my faith were crucial in getting me through these first years at the France School. But so too were the people of my community, our entire neighborhood, a neighborhood of working class people with limited education stood by me. Some folks gave us clothes, others helped me with our homework. 
Several of our neighbors walked me to school after the federal marshals were gone, and a few brave people kept watch over our home at night. There was also Robert Cole, a doctor from nearby Air Force, a nearby Air Force base who later became a famous child psychiatrist at Harvard. He drove to my home many times so I could talk to him about all the feelings I had. All of these people gave their time and effort and took personal risk to help me, and together we made history. The Supreme Court had struck down school segregation in 1954, but it took our collective courage and will to bring the court's promise of equality to New Orleans in 1960. Thanks to my family, my faith, and my community, one little girl was able to walk through that mob to go to school and get the education that every child in America deserves regardless of skin color. Well, that's Ruby's story, as she would have told it were she here. As a six-year-old, she was called upon to face a momentous challenge. I want to conclude with some thoughts on the capacity that all children have for courage. And I'm talking to you now, the children out there in the audience today. The word courage comes from the Latin word for heart. Every one of us has a heart. And every one of you has, deep within you, the capacity for courage. I've heard that many of you here today have been writing wonderful essays at school about times that you struggled to show courage. I applaud your efforts, and I applaud your teachers for helping you to explore what it means to show courage. Now, there's a special kind of courage I want to ask each of you to think about, and that is the courage it takes to build an America where all are respected for who we are, regardless of our race, color, or creed. Over the generations, millions of Americans have fought to make this country a place where color does not matter, a place where we understand and respect our differences, but where we, all, but where we always remember that we are from the same family a place where we are all created equal. It is a grand ideal, and some have even died in the struggle for us to reach it. We've come a long way, but we have not completed the journey. We are not there yet. In this country, there are still those who do not understand or believe in the American ideal of equality. There are still hate crimes. African-American churches are burned to the ground, immigrants are beaten, 
Jewish synagogues are spray-painted with Nazi swastikas? This is where you, the children of the Twin Cities, and of all America come in. Think of the opportunity you have. Think of the courage you can show. You, the children, can all agree that race does not matter, and that color does not matter, and that your differences will not keep you apart. You, the children, can all agree that there will be no hate crimes, no churches burned, no immigrants beaten, and no swastikas painted. You, the children, can all agree to uphold the American ideal of equality and freedom for everyone. Follow your hearts and make that decision, and you will have completed the journey that our forebearers set off on so many generations ago. You are not on your own in all of this. Far from it. But you, the children sitting here in this church today, you are the future. One day, you will sit in Congress, or stand in the pulpit, or preside in the corporate boardroom or the college classroom. It will be up to you to realize the American ideal that we are all created equal, that we all enjoy the same freedoms, and that grave responsibility, that great opportunity, that special chance to show courage and complete the journey to equality does not begin at some point far in the future. It waits for you even at this moment. Now, I've just mentioned many people who will support you in showing the courage to do what's right. But while they will be there for you, it's still the truth that if you stand up for what's right, there will come a time, even as a child, when you may have to stand alone. After that third day when my mother dropped me off at school, I had walked through the shouting mob each morning on my own. Your experience will be different from mine. Maybe you'll hear someone tell a racist joke, or see them spray paint a swastika, or the word nigga on a house. But even though your experience will be different from mine, it will be every bit as important because your moment to show courage, to speak out, to act, even if you are alone, will have come. And when that moment arrives, I want you to remember words of the great poet Maya Angelou who once spoke in this church. She said, I knew that if God loved me, that I could do wonderful things. I can do great things, learn anything, achieve anything. For what could stand against me with God since one person, any person with God constitutes a majority? Be with God, be in his majority, do what is right. Show the courage that you have deep within you, and you will find yourself surrounded by others who believe in your actions, who take strength from what you have done, who are inspired to join you in the struggle. Yes, be brave, for if America is the home of the brave, then it shall most certainly be the land of the free. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Dorothy Bridges. Uh, Dorothy, you've, uh, you've brought us the wonderful story of uh, Ruby, but you've, uh, Dorothy Bridges has given us uh, all a, a real challenge. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm David Nasby, moderator of today's Town Hall Forum. Our guest is Dorothy Bridges, who has just read the prepared remarks of her cousin, Ruby Bridges, on the topic Children, Race, and Reconciliation. While the ushers collect the questions here in the sanctuary, those of you listening on the radio may call in a question from Ms. Bridges by dialing area code 612-332-3421. Ms. Bridges, if you would please return to the podium, we will begin the questions. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll start out with, uh, with one while the questions are being collected. Uh, you and Ruby were peers, very close in age, uh, neighbors. Uh, Ruby went off to a segregated classroom all by herself, and you apparently were in a, a segregated school. What did you think Ruby was up to? Well. Being five years old at the time and watching these people come to our home to pick Ruby up to take her to school, my first thought was, well, geez, she gets to ride in this big fancy car. Why don't I get to ride? And have marshals with her, too. Right. I, and, and, and I think that's the mindset of a five-year-old at the time, not realizing the full implication of what it was that she was doing. We knew that something was changing in the neighborhood, but we didn't realize what it was. And all we saw was that Ruby got to ride in a nice car every day, and we got to walk to school. For those uh, listening on the radio today, we have hundreds of students in the audience today. And let me begin uh, with the questions from the audience. Let me begin with one from a student here who is age six. And the question is addressed to you in a, uh, back in those times in a very segregated society. Why weren't you scared, Dorothy Bridges? We didn't know that there was anything to be afraid of. Um, we thought we were not in Ruby's shoes. We did not follow her to school. We were at home. Our lives were, as we thought, the same as always. Business as usual for us. We went to school. We came home. We didn't notice changes uh, in Ruby as she, um, throughout the year. But uh, it was one of those things that uh, we really were aware that we were supposed to be afraid of anything. What, uh, what became of Ms. Henry, the, the first grade teacher? Do you know? Uh, I am told. Ruby has uh, met with her. In fact, uh, she was on the set of the Disney movie. And um, through my conversations with Ruby, um, she is back in Boston uh, and retired now. So the year after she taught Ruby, she went back to Boston with her husband. All right. Tell us. Uh, Tell us about uh, Ruby's family. Oh boy. Um, Ruby's father is uh, Avon Bridges and her mother, is, her mother is Lucille. 
Um, there were eight of them, four boys and four girls, and Ruby was the oldest of the, the eight. Um, and um, it was pretty typical of a, a, a black family with those many children and um, having to provide for those children. Uh, pretty busy time, pretty crowded time, pretty noisy time. Uh, her family and my family sort of mirrored each other. Her dad and my dad were twin brothers, and we were the oldest daughters of those twin brothers, so we were sort of among my family's four boys and four girls, so pretty typical for black family. Uh, a lot of trust in God and a lot of faith in uh, yourself and in your neighbors. Uh, Sam here, age nine, says, or asked the question, were there people who threatened to kill Ruby? Yes, there were many people who threatened to kill Ruby. Many. Uh, were they phone threats or personal threats? Or? Both phone, personal threats. Uh, if you read the book, um, there are some excerpts in there where uh, people were shouting, I will kill you. And if you saw the movie, you saw um, some of the people holding a coffin with a little black doll in it saying, I am going to poison you. And that truly happened. So it was both um, personal and upfront uh, phone threats as well as uh, direct. Now, did you eventually go to the same school that Ruby went to, or, or did you go to a separate, different school? Yes, I did eventually end up at William France Elementary School, and in fact, it was the second year. So I was the new first grade class coming in after the year after Ruby um, desegregated the school. So she, uh, your cousin paved the way for you. She certainly did, and we're very, very proud of her. She's always been special to us. Why did you, why did you and your, your parents decide not to go to the same school with, with Ruby? Do you know? Um, I was seven months younger than Ruby, and um, therefore was not of age. The, um, uh, the movement was for first graders um, to attend and to desegregate the William France School, and I would just have been in kindergarten. What was your first thought when Ruby uh, started the desegregation? Were you afraid of the consequences? Uh, were, were you uh, ever subjected to the threats and the hatred that you saw your cousin being subjected to? Um, being five years old, my memory is a little bit sketchy, but I don't recall that I had uh, any fear of what was going on around me because simply, uh, and Ruby stated it very well in her statements, our parents did a wonderful job of sheltering us from this hatred. And for those of us that were not directly involved, we didn't get a lot of what Ruby and her family got. Uh, we later learned and later, later in life that uh, this was a very big thing and um, a great, uh, a significant contribution that she made. So we really didn't have any cause in our minds to be afraid. Um, as, you, as you look back to those times, did you, did you have a sense that the, uh, that the quality the pre previous to the integration of the schools, that, the, that there was a significant difference between the quality of the schools that were attended by black children versus the schools that were attended by white children? Back in those times, I don't think as a five-year-old you even think of differences uh, in terms of, qualities of quality of education or anything else except something that's material. Uh, we didn't recognize in those days that the kind of education we were receiving at a segregated black school was any different from what the white children were learning in their school. 
Did, uh, did Ruby then go on to a public high school in, in New Orleans and then what college? Yes, she and I both uh, went to the same, we went to the same uh, high school uh, and then she went on to college at uh, University of New Orleans for a time. Okay, and which, which school did you go to? University of Montana. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really didn't share with the audience your resume, but, the, but uh, Dorothy has a very impressive background and has been in Minneapolis now for, I think, 18 years. Is that right? That's right. Was the, uh, uh, as you look back on this now, I mean, so much uh, a five-year-old, as you pointed out, doesn't have the most precise uh, recollection that far back, but did you have a sense that the, uh, that the entire black community was supportive of, of Ruby's uh, innovation and, and the idea that Ruby's parents had to send her to this school? I think for the most part, yes, our neighborhood and our community was very supportive, uh, particularly when my uncle lost his job. You know, the, this, the implications to our family were very far-reaching. Far my grandparents um, having a, a, a cross burned on their lawn. Um, Ruby's uh, grandparents on her mother's side having to move off the farm that they'd been at for 25 years. Um, yes. Um, it was, it was pretty, pretty difficult. difficult. What, uh, this question, what can the black race do to help the white race accept them more and to consider them equals? Um, I have to give that a little bit of thought. There won't be acceptance unless the person that is doing the accepting feels there's a need for it, first of all. Um, what black people can do to help white people accept um, Continue um, to be courageous. Continue to stand up for what you feel is right. Continue to do the right thing. To send that message over and over again, and hopefully it'll come to pass. Tough question. I know that uh, the questioner says, I know that Ruby was selected to attend France, but did Ruby want to attend France Elementary School? I can't, I can't speak for Ruby's thoughts, but I think, you know, I, I'm safe to say that Ruby was very excited about going to a new school. But she was a little bit nervous, too, because she didn't know what to expect. Okay, uh, Daniel, age nine, in a very good handwriting, asked the question, did the movie Ruby Bridges tell the truth, the whole truth, <laughs> Was it changed in any way? And I, you told us earlier a little bit about the, uh, the making of the movie, and I think your answer to this question would be great. Um, I think Disney did a wonderful job of sticking pretty close to the truth in most of the scenes. There were some things that, for whatever reason, they chose to kind of blend together. For instance, the little girl that was Ruby's friend. It's a combination of two of her best friends. So it was a, why don't you say a little bit about the Ruby's involvement in the making of the uh, movie? Ruby actually um, played a very, very key role as the on-site consultant for the Disney movie. 
So she had a great deal of influence in uh, most of the scenes in the movie. The depiction of the scene, uh, the mob scene at the school was very real, and it's how Ruby remembered it. So a lot of the scenes uh, is, is, uh, had Ruby's blessing because they're very close to reality in her mind. Dorothy, did you ever have a, a sense that your cousin was doing something that no one had ever done before, that there was just something really special about what was going on here, other than the big car? Uh, not at five years old, but later in life, um, as we sort of grew up and shared a lot of things together, um, we always knew Ruby was special, as we all were special in our minds and in our parents' minds. Um, but later in life, as we learned more and more about the sacrifice of her personally and her family, um, we, we learned what a brave and courageous thing that she had done. Um, and we love her all the more for it. How would you uh, evaluate the educational possibilities and opportunities for uh, for African-American students in today's integrated schools? Whoa. <laughs> How would I evaluate? And we have about three minutes left. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think that many teachers and many um, um, administrative people have done a fabulous job of teaching diversity and acceptance for children, no matter what the race, color, or difference. I think, however, there is a long way to go. Is, uh, is there any effort being made to rename uh, the New Orleans School for Ruby that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. Maybe we could start a movement here today. Why not? <laughs> Dorothy, uh, I have a, uh, actually there's a whole handful of cards uh, down there that express the same sentiment, and that is that uh, many of us, all of us, would really like you to send Ruby our love and support and our thanks. Thank you, I will. And, uh, and they also want to say that uh, you need to tell her that you did a fabulous job. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. Dorothy Bridges, thank you very much.